This is an ABC podcast. Ben, new year, new rules. We have to fact check your CV before another season of Stop Everything Can Begin. So state your full name. Oh, sure. It's uh, Benjamin, Yuknang, George, Anthony, Devolta, Katara, Ravash, San- Santos, <clears throat> uh, Law. Uh, and it says here you worked at Goldman Sachs. Mm, mm, mm. Your mother was in the World Trade Center on September 11th. Very tragic. And you're Jewish? How, <clears throat> how can this be true? Uh, ben- Benjamin is a Hebrew name, and I said uh, Jewish. Uh, stop everything. Culture does move fast, as fast as the wildly entertaining fabrications and lies piling up around the life story of U.S. Republican Congressman George Santos. Hello, I'm Beverly Wang, and I actually did graduate from NYU. Hello, Benjamin Law. We're back. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We're going to have to fact check a few of those things. I mean, I do believe you graduated from NYU. I've got the diploma in my bedroom closet. But is that your real name? And is it going to be a happy new year? We're going to have to find out together. We are back after our summer break. Hope you all enjoyed our summer season. Happy Lunar New Year. Year of the rabbit, year of the cat ahead. Beverly, I can't wait to find out what you and Howard over the summer, though I do know you've gotten me deep diving into the saga of George Santos. Yes, this is not an obscure story by any means. So it's very ambiently aware, but you've gotten me deep diving now. I can't believe this is so much in your area of interest, Ben. George Santos, the first openly gay Republican elected to the US Congress, basically since after he's been elected, there's been a lot of journalism digging around and exposing his web of lies that originated with just simply fact-checking his CV. So in addition to what we covered in the opener, some of the other lies that George Santos is said to have told, that he went to NYU and Baruch College, he was a star volleyball player, that he worked at Citigroup, and that his grandparents are Holocaust survivors, even though he's Catholic, and he's even accused of taking money from a fundraiser for the dying dog of a homeless veteran. And footnote, also allegations of campaign finance misconduct. Oh, just a few things. Just a few little things. It's a lasagna of lies. And as I hear that, it sounds like he is ripe to be sent up and has been a gift to late night comedy. Oh, absolutely. Here's just a brief montage. Oh, hello, Congressman. It's Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, You were just named to the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. Does that make sense to you? Well, yeah, yeah, because I was the first openly gay Jewish Republican Latino to walk on the moon. Do you have a problem with that? A lot of people have called you out for lying about details in your life. And what do you have to say to that? Well, you know, I don't consider the things I've said to be lies. They're uh, they're what my great-grandfather, Winston Churchill... He would call them embellishments, embellishments. You lied about working at Goldman Sachs? No, I filled the gold man sacks. <laughs> you lied about your mom dying in 9-11? I think I said 7-11. No. <laughs> no, you even lied about being Jewish. No, I said I was Jewish, which is honestly iconic. You denied claims that you used to perform as a drag queen. <laughs> Absolutely, Stephen. This drag story is just another media uh, distraction that is simply not going to work. Oh, That is a roll call of all of the different late night shows that have seen the George Santos for the gift that it is. So starting off, we had Jimmy Kimmel with his George Santos, played by Nelson Franklin, followed by Jimmy Fallon with his George Santos, played by John Lovitz, and then Saturday Night Live's Bowen Yang as George Santos on Weekend Update. Finally bringing it home, we have Stephen Colbert with his George Santos, played by Harvey Guillen, who fans of what we do in the shadows will know as Guillermo. And coming up is Beverly's and my impersonation of George. It's it's like everyone is lining up to play him because there's just so much material. When we heard that reference there before about George Santos's drag history, that is for me in particular, such a delicious 
chapter in this saga where you've seen George quite festively in drag. It's almost like he's pulling off a political talented Mr. Ripley, but not very artfully. And it does make me wonder about the vetting process in United States politics. Yeah, because he ran for election a couple of times before and nobody really called his CV into question. It was only when he was elected to Congress. Anywho, that's an American story that we find very, very interesting. There's a lot more to come, no doubt. And I do find it a heck of a lot more interesting than Twitter Death Watch of 2022. Long may that segment rest in peace. I have not tooted nor tweeted barely at all over the summer break, and I might just keep it that way. It's so soul-refreshing. It's better for your gut flora not to do either of those things, Beverly. My My biota is healthy now. <laughs> now, in a little bit, you're going to hear from two of the creative minds behind This Is Australia, which is the local remake of Childish Gambino's brutal critique of U.S. culture, this is America. But right now, can we please spare a few moments for spare? Yeah, so we did talk on Stop Everything heading into the Christmas and New Year period about Harry and Meghan's six-part documentary series. That was six parts. It's all their people. There's a lot of material. For people who are of my generation, I'm like, that's a lot of memoir to cover. But is it enough? Because we've had the documentary and now here comes the brick of the memoir. You and I, we were blissfully on summer break, but the media machine around Prince Harry's tell-all memoir spare fired up. And this is now apparently the most fastest-selling non-fiction book of all time, a publishing event. I mean, it surpassed Michelle Obama's Becoming. Hmm. So that's a pretty big feat in our minds. Uh, And not just our minds, actually materially, financially in the publishing world. This is huge. So Prince Harry was paid reportedly $20 million as an advance for this book published by Penguin Random House. And so it was already a bestseller based on its pre-sales ahead of its release in January. And once it actually came out of the gate, let me just read some stats to you. Global sales in the first week post-release hit 3.2 million copies across format. So that's across mm. hard copy, across uh, your ebook reader, and also things like audiobooks. Just want to note that in Australia, this hard copy book costs $60, 60 clams. That's not cheap. You can buy several books with that money, (laughs) or you can choose to buy Prince Harry's That one single book. In Australia, it sold 64,000 copies. And then across all formats, 120,000. That's huge for Australians. A lot of people have also noticed the fact that the book is quite well written. I think a lot of people have dismissed this book as, oh, it's just going to be celebrity tabloid fodder trash, but it is ghostwritten by J.R. Moringer. He's this well-regarded Pulitzer Prize winning features journalist and author. Uh, He's best known for his own memoir and working with people like Andre Agassi on his memoir, Open. If you put those two books side by side, a lot of people have noticed even the aesthetic similarities of those books. Yeah, the cover photographs are quite striking. Exactly. It's the face taking up the entire thing. It is a publishing event. You know, a lot of people who didn't even read sports memoirs were completely taken in by Andre Agassi's Open. Okay, but this is the question, right? We've already talked about how there are six hours of Harry and Meghan, which did dominate Netflix when it was released. But the other question still remains, and I think this is still valid to ask, what is the purpose? What are we meant to take away from it? How does this leave the relationship with the royal family and Harry and Meghan? And I think most importantly, this tell-all memoir is so... (laughs) scorching in some of its critiques, right? That you just think, well, this is, we cannot come back from this. Uh, This relationship with this family is totally uh, firebombed to all hell. Beyond, I guess, venting your spleen personally about your breakup with your family, what is the point for us as regular people, not royals, kind of facing all of these headlines about Harry's baldness, lip gloss, being (laughs) hostilely lent out, who made who cry? Why do we still care? Mm. You ask a question about like, what is the purpose of this, Beverly? And it's quite interesting that the effect of this, as you quite rightly point out, there will be no return from this. It's kind of like, I am taking an institution and shaking out all of its skeletons. It's an institution that is defined by its closed doors. We are preventing you from seeing inside. And here's Prince Harry 
basically opening the doors and revealing so much, all those details that you spoke about, but also giving us a personal insight for the first time in depth, what it was like to find out that his mother had died and what that exchange was like with Prince and now King Charles. It's interesting that Prince Harry has talked about the intention of the book being about laying everything out in the open so that we can start to make amends. And you could almost argue that culturally, that's a very kind of American project, you know, like let's get all things out in the open. Wanting to be heard and seen. Exactly. Let me be heard. Let me be seen. So we can start discussing this in a very healthy way. Of course, the reaction. Yeah. And the very much the opposite of a stiff upper lip, which is the Mm, British thing. Right. Exactly. But of course, he's dealing with not just a British family, but a British institution, which does not value these things and will see it as an affront. So in terms of intention versus outcome, Big gulf. Yeah, I have to say, you know, as anybody who grew up in the shadow of the Diana, you know, myth and her tragic death, it is really fascinating to finally get such a close view from her child. I mean, those images of Harry and William walking behind Diana's coffin are indelible. We all remember that and the tragedy of that. So it is actually quite fascinating to then read in his own words, via his ghostwriter, of course, what he's thinking, what he was feeling. And get a true grasp of the deep, immense trauma that goes beyond the photographs of him putting flowers down at the tribute site. We get to really hear and see and understand what's going on there. And I think that helps to put things into some kind of order for us as readers and for Harry. Obviously, this is some kind of therapeutic process. But just to go back to the point about having some kind of reconciliation with the royal family Mm. after all this has come out, it is really fascinating. Here is how he talked about it in his 60 Minutes interview with Anderson Cooper. In the book, you call this a a full-scale rupture. Can it be healed? Yes. The board is very much in their court. But, you know, Megan and I have continued to say that we will openly apologize for anything that we did wrong. But every time we ask that question, no one's telling us the specifics or anything. There needs to be a constructive conversation, one that can happen in private that doesn't get leaked. What do you think about that? The desire for a private conversation in the wake of him publishing this like three-inch thick tell-all memoir? What I think is interesting, bordering on odd, is that so much of the book actually reveals and illuminates the inner workings of the British monarchy in almost a mechanical way. We discover things like family members will leak to the press themselves from within the palace. We understand how communication works. And Prince Harry, for someone with such an intimate knowledge of all of those um, mechanics within the palace... He's revealing them while not quite acknowledging the reality that it doesn't seem like an institution that's going to be amenable to what he's seeking. And this book has been out for several weeks now. The royal family has been a closed shop in terms of saying anything about this. You know, all those shots of Kate and William conducting their affairs in public, they're not going to talk about this book. They're not even going to acknowledge it. So coming into a new year. They're not going to engage with this on any level. And by extension, you can't really see them engaging with Harry himself. Yeah, it does not compute. And I think that feeling of does not compute is also applies to my feelings about the six-part documentary and also applies to some aspects of the media empire. Like they're going maybe eight-tenths of the way and they're sharing lots of things, and they're coming to a point where it's like, I still don't understand what's happening. It's like, uh, it simply does not compute. I think there's a few pieces that still have to fall into place. I do wonder, like, is this the end of the content well of this story? Is there going to be more? We have so much. Is there just another vein that has not been tapped? What do you think? Can the cow be milked Yes, further? exactly. <laughs> is there another drop to squeeze out of this? You know what cow I do want to milk, Beverly? Oh, do tell. (laughs) Uh, The most artless segue of all time. The Oscar nominations have just been released earlier this week. Award season is in full swing and it crescendos, of course, with the Oscars. And I do feel like in this past year, I've actually gone out and seen some of these films. Everything, everywhere, all at once. We've had the Daniels on Stop Everything. It leads with 11 nominations and both Daniels are nominated alongside giants like Steven Spielberg 
Michelle Yeoh, Jamie Lee Curtis, Stephanie Sue. The whole cast is there, which is a pretty epic feat. And it's nominated for Best Picture, which is, I think, the biggest thing of all. So it's not a quirky little A24 movie that's going to go for the Independent Spirit Awards and get shot of the Oscars. Everything, everywhere, all at once has been fully embraced mm. by Hollywood. It's followed by a lot of nominations for the Banshees of Inisherin and All Quiet on the Western Front. Elvis, homegrown film here, up for a lot of awards, including Best Actor and Best Picture. Baz Luhrmann overlooked for Best Director. But we do have someone else representing Australia is Kate Blanchett, nominated for Tar, which is also up for Best Film. But what breaks my heart, Beverly, what is tearing my vital organs apart is that it's going to be a race for Best Actress in leading role between Kate Blanchett and our mother, Michelle Yeoh. I don't understand why you have any conflict there. The choice should be clear, Benjamin. Well, I betrayal. love both of these people. It's not betrayal. I'm just saying these you have performances to choose one. are great. Well, it's Michelle Yeoh, obviously. I mean, Kate Blanchett does a lot in Tar, but does she do Kung Fu? Does she occupy 11 million versions of herself? Does she have a butt plug herself? fight? And does she have a butt plug fight? I mean, that's probably coming up in her next drama, but not this one. So some of these films that we've seen and we think are really deserving of these nominations, I think we just have to just note for now that Top Gun Maverick has been nominated for Best Picture. Look, I watched that movie, nostalgic Best Picture material. I think we have to chalk that up to a very successful awards season campaign rather than the quality of the film. And Nope Got Nope and The Woman King Got Nothing. I think something's not sitting right with me on that count. Time to take to the streets. The Academy Awards will be broadcast on March the 12th. Place your bets now. When it debuted in 2018, Childish Gambino's This Is America became instantly iconic, packed with lyrics, choreography, and visual references skewering racism and capitalism in the United States of America. In the years since This Is America was released, it's inspired numerous nationally specific versions from Iraq to Sierra Leone. And now there's a new version, This Is Australia, created by Marigaku Dance Theatre with lyrics by rapper Benny Bajar and filmed in the Kimberley on the lands of the Boonaba people in Fitzroy Crossing in Western Australia. And in the lead up to January 26, this clip had hit close to 300,000 views across Marigeku's digital platforms. It's going off. This is Australia. Look how I'm killing you. Locking your children up. Filling my prisons up. This is Australia. Look how I'm fearing you. Locking your children up. Filling my prisons up. This is Australia is a work that's been a couple of years in the making and it is encoded with as much visual and lyrical detail as Childish Gambino's original. Dahlia Pigram and Rachel Swain are co-artistic directors of Marugeku, Australia's leading Indigenous intercultural dance theatre company. Dahlia, Rachel, welcome to Stop Everything. Thanks for having us. Dahlia, to start with you, what did you think of This is America when you first saw it? Well, Rachel introduced it to me and I was blown away with the artistic way of really connecting some of the iconic issues that were going on for America over there in in a really, really clever way through music, through dance, through the mediums that we often use to tell stories. So I was really impressed, but devastated in the same breath to think of, you know, a fellow countryman in a way having to deal with these things day in, day out. Were there any key images or words that stuck with you? The caricature, kind of the way that Donald Glover becomes America in a sense and the way that choreographically they were able to capture these, you know, very, very clever things to say without saying, um, but also in the lyrics, of course, um, to be led uh, through that journey and, and, and to make those points in the way that they do so amazingly, you know. How about you, Rachel? What struck you about This Is America? I think for me it was this kind of layering of history and the history of slavery and the contemporary perception of African Americans today with issues around gun violence and other contemporary issues of living in America today around the media and the internet. The team were able to 
work with this with irony, but in this really kind of accessible and upbeat way, you know, clearly they'd created it in a way that they wanted it to fly around the world to, you know, just become this viral sensation, which really promoted dance. So it came out in 2018. We were working on our plans for it in 2019. So it was pre-pandemic for us. It wasn't a digital response to the pandemic in its own sense, but we were really interested to engage with YouTube as a platform for contemporary choreography coming from community and culturally informed contemporary dance. So, Rachel, let's take a step back because it sounds like when you saw the clip, you had the reaction that a lot of us did when we first saw Childish Gambino, Donald Glover perform, which is, I need to show someone. You showed Dali, you would have shown a lot of other people as well. At what point did you think there's something in here about how Donald Glover's portraying the American experience that we can do something with in expressing the Australian experience? I think it was when I started to see what became this global movement of responses to This Is America with the other video clips that started to come out, like this is Nigeria, this is Iraq, and the way that they were coming from conflict zones and they were coming from places where there were other gross violations of human rights. And so it just exploded in in my brain that we could position Australia within this kind of global dialogue Also around the issues for people of colour around the world where artists can interrogate the government through this medium, through hip-hop, which has within it this process of quoting other artists and responding to other artists. It's a bit like a kind of manifesto, the way manifestos are often repeated and engaged with. We got super excited about doing This Is Australia, but we were like, please don't let anyone else do it. (laughs) We really want to do it. We know we can do it. We, you know, we know awesome artists who can do it with us. But then the pandemic hit and we were really stuck. We knew we wanted to shoot it in the Kimberley and the communities were closed and we just kept saying to people, don't tell anyone we're going to do this. (laughs) So we had to sit on the idea, which was a bit excruciating. Is it a bit of a relief now, Dahlia, after all that time to actually have it out in the world and having people talk about it? And we can talk about it now as well. It was just such a relief to be able to have shot it the way we had had imagined in the Kimberley. And it was straight off the bat after coming out of, you know, months and months of being separated. It was one of the first things we did touring in the Kimberley here that was the perfect opportunity to make sure that this project got done and got completed and goodness knows how we managed it all because there was a lot of elements to come together very, very quickly. But we did it and we did it with an awesome team of artists that have invested all their you know, looking at all those different responses around the world, Donald Glover's original video, all the ideas from the artists that we were privileged to work with that came and crafting that together with super wonderful producers and and camera people and and crew and, and costume designers and all the rest to bring all of that together was truly a privilege really at that point. When This Is America came out in May 2018, you know, Donald Glover, he didn't want to say too much about it. And the one quote he did give when someone asked him about it was, I just wanted to make a good song, something that people could play on the 4th of July, which is their national holiday. And I know that This Is Australia was released in December in support of the UN's Human Rights Day. But in the lead up to January 26, known as Australia Day or Invasion Day or Survival Day, depending on your perspective in Australia, the video is getting a huge response. Is this a song that you want people here to listen to, think about in their hearts and minds on the 26th of January? For sure. We released it around International World Human Rights Day because it looks at the treatment of human beings from both, you know, refugee perspective and our treatment, you know, and this country's fixation on on locking up people or putting them here and there in their fear. I think we need to have these conversations. And if our video prompts those conversations that I know are growing and building as we approach and as we pass that particular date, and as you say, from our different perspectives, if we keep seeing what people are saying about it, we can keep talking about it and we might get somewhere one day with feeling proud to be in this place that we share. Rachel, what have you heard and how have people reacted to This Is Australia? 
There's been a really strong response, of course, from the Indigenous community and from the hip-hop and from the dance community. But one thing I'm really interested in, and I didn't actually know that Donald Glover didn't say much about the clip, and I like the way he's kind of enigmatic because he and his team made This Is America like a kind of treasure hunt. Like there's all these amazing buried references in there that does draw you back again and again to watch it and try and decode it. And some of the great responses have been people who are starting to see all these awesome little hidden clues that we've placed in there. Zoe Atkins, a costume designer, did a lot of exceptional work. And there are some fantastic references in the costumes, which, you know, I'm going to take a line out of Donald Glover and not explain. <laughs> well, we see the Blonde Sunrise reporter. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, it would be interesting for people to take a reading on the costume that Luke Curry Richardson and Benny Bajara are wearing in the opening sequences and their kind of dual dancer, rapper role. But there is a lot in there. And I think as people continue to engage with it, we're excited about the little discoveries that people have been making. We'd love to hear more about your artistic collaborations, especially with a rapper, Benny Bajah, who wrote and performed all of the new Australian lyrics. How did he come on board and what did he bring to the project? Yeah, well, I think Benny was challenged with probably not what he's usually asked to do, which is to take someone else's structure of a song and rewrite the lyrics of something that already exists. But he did an amazing job and he worked with us in what we could imagine, you know, which voice is speaking and really trying to use the original as a template and as everyone else has done to try to create verses that spoke from a particular perspective, whether it was the choruses or the refrains that are, you know, we just want a Barbie, you know, like from the good old Aussie approach to everything she'll be right, mate, kind of thing to punching you in the face with some of the lyrics from perspectives of First Nations people or the refugee situations and the Pacific Solution and all these things. He was really amazing at listening really well to what we were trying to achieve with the lyrics and doing his thing, you know, and his delivery can only come from Benny. He's just got that voice that he's got. Yeah, that growl, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to go into this. Rachel, obviously a lot of conversations are needed with so many collaborators. You're making a clip, so that involves designers and dancers and rappers and everyone. Have you also had a conversation with the originator, the seed of this project, who is Childish Gambino, Donald Glover? Do you need to ask for any permissions or do you know if this clip has been on his radar? Well, actually, because there has been this global response, he has made the backing track without the lyrics available internationally for people to download and make their own version. And he, in that sense, kind of has waived the rights so that people are able to do that. I would imagine if I was him that he's like encouraged, you know, brings attention back to their own clip, of course, that they worked on. So, no, we haven't heard yet. We have been waiting to see, I guess, if we get uh, some response. And we knew that launching it before December would let it kick off with a bit of a slow burn before Survival Day. So we're very excited to see the numbers of hits really, really going up this week. Hopefully it's got his attention so far and hopefully he and his team are proud of what they did and proud that in this part of the world there has been this engagement with this movement he started and this response of speaking back to contemporary situations. Some of the versions are almost done in a single take and you can tell that they're just very grassroots. They're done in the streets of some communities. Like we were lucky to work with Jill Moody from Calori Productions as our producer and work with David Tran as the cinematographer who did the Steadicam work. It's quite an epic adventure because it is only five shots. So in some ways it's crafted almost like theatre or dance in that it's you have to cue all the choreography to travel in front of and across the frame in time to the music as you do when you're creating a piece of theatre. And so, of course, we had the sound there as a guide trap 
literally a, a Yui boom hanging off the back pocket of the cinematographer so everyone around him could hear it and be in time in relationship to the camera. You know, we were shooting this in, it was like 42 degrees in Fitzroy Crossing and Bonobo Country. But having said that, we had a lot of resources in what we did and some of the responses are made very rough and ready but with a lot of strength of feeling. So hopefully he's super proud of what he did and we're certainly proud to be part of it. It is so fascinating to see how this is Australia, this is Nigeria, this is Sierra Leone. They are both referencing This is America, the original, but also bringing their own very specific mentions and references. And This is Australia does that as well. What do you think it is about that original work that enables itself to be such an envelope for expressing these counterpoint views and critiques of national identity? I feel like we are celebrating, obviously, this really fantastic video that was a response to looking at what they role modelled in the way that they were speaking back to their country in terms of the original and, and how each of the ones that I've seen are doing that. And you know, while we're really proud and we're really excited, it's also heartbreaking. We're depicting some really key moments in our own history that hurt like hell, that break our hearts, that we live every day. But, you know, this is what art is. It's to provoke dialogue and these kinds of responses from us as artists, but also from people who view them. And it's also a way to reach communities. Like for us, we're looking at people that are often locked up and put away. Look at the devastating incarceration rates of my people and our children and the treatment of those and and those in refugee camps and held in detention centres for goodness knows how long. And how do we access them? We don't want to just access those that are going to give us a hit. (laughs) It's more to speak to our own communities to say, we're with you. We, We are trying to say the same things that people are crying out for day in, day out for so long. Not much has changed in this country. You know, look into the Aboriginal deaths and custody and, you know, some 30 odd years later, things are worse. So how are we actually addressing these things and when will we see this change that we're all waiting for? The whole idea of This Is Australia is such a provocation, you know, to encapsulate the ills of any culture or society is such a big project. I mean, what were those discussions like? Like, what are the parameters that you're playing with? Because in this track in particular and in this choreography, this highlights Australia's mistreatment of First Nations people and asylum seekers. And I'm really interested in why that was important for Merigeku to incorporate both of those conversations. It is part of a kind of a body of work around a, a wider investigation of Marigaku's, which has also resulted in a full-length dance work called Jodongonganga. And Dahlia and I, for many years, have worked closely with Dahlia's pop, Patrick Dodson, who's a senior Yaru lawman, on the content of our works. And we were very interested to explore the way Australia locks up that which it fears Like most of our projects, we started with conversations with Patrick. And as it happened, the first time the three of us sat down together to talk about the work, it was the day after Australia's Shame, the expose on the Dondale Detention Centre was screened on ABC Four Corners the night before. So the conversation about locking up that which you fear turned very quickly to the juvenile justice system and to the terrible footage that we'd seen the night before. And Patrick immediately made the connection to our incarceration of asylum seekers in offshore and onshore immigration detention centres and prison islands. And that link became a very central theme for that live work that we were also making. And so This Is Australia came as a kind of a body of work as a response to those issues. And because we were talking about the level of the psyche of Australia and how we have this kind of knee-jerk reaction to lock away things that are difficult for us. And he talked about us being a nation of jailers from colonial times and this colonial reference being important. So, for example, the presence of the Captain Cook figure in the work comes directly from that conversation with Patrick, as it does in our other work. But we also brainstormed with the cast 
who co-create our works and they co-created the choreography with Dahlia. We sat down and we all threw around all these kinds of ideas. Like it had really stuck in my mind in the middle of the year seeing Maine Wyatt and Nakia Louie speaking post the George Floyd murder about deaths in custody and they were asked what is the critical question and Maine Wyatt said, don't kill us. So that you'll see Emmanuel James Brown, one of our Bunaba dancer in the work, and Issa Al-Assad, who was born a refugee, also a dancer in the work. They're holding up this placard saying, don't kill us. I think it's really important to note that the young children that were in there were also cast because of the ages of young children that can enter the juvenile justice system in different states in Australia. In some states, I think in Western Australia, it's still 10. So we had young people of those ages in the juvie costumes, you know, in the uniforms that they would wear in juvie. And, you know, there's a range of ages in there, but those young children could be in the juvenile justice prisons. Mm. So we're kind of a bit Bowerbird-ish, you know, with there's all these references in there that come from all kinds of different moments of, you know, kind of media events and exposure and things that are kind of in the zeitgeist of the country so that when we're saying this is Australia, we're kind of reflecting back on all kinds of different key moments from recent years. Yeah, you certainly see that in the visual references to, as you mentioned, you know, the Spit Hood, which is infamous connection to Dawndale, Captain Cook, those signs, the Sunrise Reporter, as Ben mentioned. Was there anything that you brainstormed that ultimately didn't make the cut? Plenty. There was talk about, you know, herds of sheep and <laughs> horses and... Stockmen. Oh, that sounds like a much bigger budget. <laughs> Baz Luhrmann level. Yeah. yeah. We also made it in the peak of the pandemic in the Kimberley. We, we shot it in April. The WA border opened on the 3rd of March, which meant that it was the moment when they said, okay, Omicron, come and get us. And we were up there in the Kimberley touring our large-scale work. Like we were casting extras the week we were making it and, you know, we were testing people, you know, we were finding out they had COVID. Like there was literally the sense of making each scene with the people that we had on the day that we had it. Like we would just like rehearse it with them there and then because we had them and they were there and then do like the seven takes it took to get everything coordinated and for the, you know, heroic Steadicam operator, David Tranter, just to kind of keep everything in the frame that he needed to do. Dahlia, we've already talked about why it's a timely time for people to be discussing and watching and listening to this track. It's also quite a pivotal year for First Nations rights. By the end of this year, it's very likely we'll have a referendum about voice to parliament. Where do you think this song, this dance performance fits into that broader conversation? It's complex, isn't it? There's lots of different opinions on on even what I see as hope. My own perspective is what's coming is something that I've personally been hoping for. And as a company, you know, how can you not accept, you know, the power of and the generosity of, of something like the Uluru Statement from the Heart and what it offers a nation? And that's inspired, you know, a lot of why we try to tackle certain things from particular angles to, to get conversations around it, to show the complexities, to kind of expose the potentials. And so I, I guess that's what I'm hoping, that people will watch this video, listen to the lyrics, feel something and act on it or let it sink in, let it position you in whichever perspective you're coming from and act on it in a positive way for the good of everyone rather than just for the sole purpose of bettering one mob of people, you know. It's just too long. We've just been suffering these things for too long. And I know that not everyone is suffering. I don't want to make it sound like our people are suffering. We are strong, resilient people. We are still here. We have always been here and we'll never give up our country and we'll never give up the pride that we have for who we are and our connection to this land. And it's about time people start hearing us and feeling us and listening to us and and standing with us. And hopefully that will create new pathways forward where we can actually have something to be proud of as a one, you know? Well, Dahlia Pigram and Rachel Swain, thank you so much for having this conversation with us and telling us about This Is Australia. Thank you also. Thank you so much for having us. 
Dahlia Pigram and Rachel Swain are co-directors of This Is Australia. They are the longtime co-artistic directors of Maragaku Dance Theatre, based in Broome, WA, on the lands of the Yaru people, and in Sydney on the land of the Gadigal people. Noongar rapper Benny Bajar has reworked the lyrics, teaming up with Maragaku. Benny spoke to digital reporter Hannah Reish about the key lyrics and messages that he wanted to include. I really wanted to have the irony, like at the start when I'm talking about we just want a Barbie, crack a can or two, put upon your thongs, Aussie day is due. And then talking about how I'm saying least we forget with the Anzacs, which is great, but then when it comes to Indigenous history and, and the stuff that we've been through, they tell us to get over it. We just want a Barbie, crack a can for two, put upon your thongs, Aussie day is due. Oh, lest we forget. At the start, Luke is wearing the woolen pants and I'm wearing the jacket that goes with it. That's what the convicts, when they first arrived to Australia, had to wear and it was made out of wool and they weren't allowed to take them off. So um, we wanted to add little elements of that in there. And what we've actually added on there is they used to have arrows pointing down, but we've got arrows pointing up on there, which is like sort of like a path to follow in Indigenous signs. And also with the kids that are dancing there wearing Dondal uniforms, which is red and grey, which is um, like the 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds actually wearing in incarceration. On the ship is Captain Cook whaling and melting, which is like an ode to like the monuments and the statues, which are getting taken down. So I think that's a bit of ode to that with the statues melting. And then at the end, obviously, the kids getting chased by the police, which I think is a great metaphor for Indigenous children these days and the issues they're facing as well. I just want them to take take away from it that we're not pointing the finger at anyone or blaming any single person, like we're talking about the systematic racism and institutionalised racism that's been embedded in the, the white Australian policy since invasion, and we're trying to bring this to the forefront so people know that we need to start making changes at the base of the constitution and hopefully later on this year people will vote yes to give a voice to parliament for indigenous peoples which i think will be a great step forward benny spoke to hannah for abcr and digital we'll put links to hannah's article and to the video in the show notes okay we're here now Dessert course, we get to talk about all the treats that we had this summer break. What did we put in our eyeballs? What did we insert into our skulls? <laughs> yeah, that was a into good our time. Craniums. Sounds yeah. relaxing. Something that I started watching last year and it was a source of great delight, tension, joy, interest, fascination. Singles Inferno season one. Remember that was a massive hit for Netflix last Ooh, year. Yeah, let's start with trash. Uh, this is a trash positive space, me. by the way. <laughs> we are the bin chickens this of pop is culture. Not tr- no, I refute that premise. Okay, tell us why this is a shining jewel in the Netflix crown. First of all, Singles Inferno season two is similar to season one in that it is the most polite, considerate slow dating show that you will encounter that is still in competition format with lots of hotties. Everybody is so incredibly well-mannered. The show is called Singles Inferno. You think it's going to be hot, hot, hot. Anybody who's ever cooked a stew or let's say a jjigae for Mm -hmm. our Korean friends knows that if you put a clay pot on the back burner of a stove and you set that thing at low heat and you let that simmer for hours... Whatever's in that pot is going to be as hot as whatever you took to a hot, fast boil, hotter even. Okay, I'm getting the sense that it is hot. I'm yes, getting it's the hot. Sense I haven't mentioned it that it's hot. Slow. But here in Australia, when you think about the dating reality competition formats, especially that we've produced in this country, that's and trash. Exported, it's pretty frenetic, it's arguably quite toxic, and it's built for conflict. So all those things build to a frenetic, fast pace. What does slowness in that realm of genre even what it means is then is that it builds and so every small look gesture pause silence anything 
become significant because people on that show choose their words very carefully. I think it's partly cultural for lots of reasons. Manners are very, very important, and there are different norms. And so people are very careful. And what I get from it is understanding that existence kind of has to take place in a very, very kind of narrow lane for a lot of people, Mm. right? And so how are people maneuvering, figuring things out within the parameters that they have to stick inside of is interesting. And I just think it's a really interesting kind of insight through the lens of dating TV, what a culture prioritizes, what a culture values. One of the biggest reactions that the actual cast members have is when they find out that one among them goes to Harvard, Habadu. That is the biggest reaction that anybody has. The shouts and the screams that someone goes to Harvard. I just... (laughs) That represents a scandal. You know, married at first sight, a scandal. It's going to be something really, really vile here. The the excitement excitement is around an Ivy League college. That would not even be a plot point in an Australian dating TV show. I just really enjoy the way it pulls you in. At first, it's a little bit boring. But if you persist with Singles Inferno, it will reward you like a delicious, burning... Tofu jjigae, bude jjigae. Yeah, throw some spam in there. The other thing that I really like about Singles Inferno is all of the spin-off content. So you can watch lots of YouTube videos of the cast getting together. And you can also hop on TikTok and watch reactions like this one from Beverly Hills plastic surgeon, Dr. Charles Lee, who often posts about celebrity plastic surgery. And here he is breaking down the plastic surgery that, in his expert opinion, the cast of Singles Inferno season two has had. Celebrity Plastic Surgery Secrets, Singles Inferno, Season 2. The Miss Korea, her eyelids are a little asymmetric, her nose is a little bit crooked. I think she's had both procedures. He has a nice profile, but no obvious signs of surgery. Oh, the Harvard Pre-Med, no obvious signs of surgery. It's a pretty long, large implant rhinoplasty. She's the one I thought all the guys would go for, no obvious signs of surgery. Oh yes, the Shep, I see an implant here, he had rhinoplasty. Uh, Soi, I don't think she had any surgery done. And it's pretty obvious he had a rhinoplasty, and then the chin looks like an implant to me. It's a little bit high riding. Oh yeah, the Seoul National Pianist. It looks like eyelid scars to me here. Her tip's a little bit overprojected. Uh, a very suspicious, harsh, straight line here. See, Ben, it's not trash, okay? I'll accept your apology in the mail. I do like that you're bringing some key pillars of Korean culture into this conversation, which is education, soup, and plastic surgery. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So that's some reality you've been watching. In terms of some scripted content, screenwriter over here, speak to me, Beverly. You've been watching two very different shows, Abbott Elementary and Julia. So Abbott Elementary was a show that our esteemed guests in last year's end of year panel, Rudy Bremer and Talia Alatia, really talked up a lot. So I thought, okay, this summer I'm going to take my own advice from my own panel and I'm going to watch the show. It's very funny. It's a 30-minute kind of very short and snappy sitcom, kind of in the vein of a modern family. That kind of short, sharp, really uh, tight ensemble and cast. And looks to the camera like Parks and Recreation yes. as well. I do think it's interesting that the U.S. public school system is so bad that it has now become fodder for a comedy mm. that we are at the levels of, we accept how bad the schools are, let's make a comedy about a how our schools... comedy. The line between tragedy and comedy is very thin. This is a multi-award winning sitcom. It's been created by Quinta Brunson, who also stars in the series as the young and idealistic, enthusiastic second grade teacher Janine Teague's Disney Plus. Check it out. I think one of the funniest characters is the useless school principal slash social media whiz. Janelle James, who's played by Ava Coleman. Very funny stuff. And the other thing that you've been liking, I know, is Julia. And that stars Sarah Lancashire as Julia Child. That role was very popularized by Meryl Streep and Julia and Julia. And I bring that up because one of the things that I've been loving is also a show starring Sarah Lancashire. We've talked about it or mentioned it on Stop Everything before. It's Happy Valley season three. Now, I know we've had big conversations about Mayor of Easttown, which is an incredible show, essentially about grief and trauma while also being an amazing cop show. Happy Valley is the British show that preceded it that I think is its spiritual mother. And Sarah Lancashire, who plays Catherine Cabewood in it, is just so gritty and wild. Such a different role to you seeing her play Julia Childs. What I find really nourishing and satisfying about Happy Valley is it hasn't spat out its seasons. Can I just 
guide you through the chronology yeah. of what's going on here. So season one, Sarah Lancashire plays Catherine Kaywood. She's a grieving mother and a really toughened cop. And season one starts when the person who's responsible for her daughter's death is released from prison and she's raising the grandson who's a result of a very, very violent assault on her daughter and that split up the family as a result. That was in 2014. Season two, two years between 2016. Season three has come up in 2023, seven years later, with the original cast so intact that even the child, Reese Connor, who played Ryan, the little kid in season one, is now almost about to graduate from high school. And it's so incredible. It feels like almost... Like one of the Seven Up documentaries? One of the Seven Up documentaries. That's a great comparison. That leap in time where it's like, I remember this family. I remember the grief and the pain that they've carried as they also solve incredible crimes. So that's Happy Valley. That's a big thing that I've been into. And the other thing that I've really loved, going from grim British cop show to sunny American comedy special. So this is Atsuko Okatsuka. She's a Taiwanese-born American. Yep, I see your eyebrows being raised. One of my people. One of your people. Represent. She was born in Taiwan to Japanese and Taiwanese parents. (laughs) Not joking. She's really come up through the ranks of social media. She's known for her kind of dance choreography on TikTok. She's known for her really sweet videos with her with her grandmother. She moved to the US at 10 with her mother and grandmother and lived undocumented for seven years. In a garage. And yeah. Her family's been through some stuff and she is now on the main stage for an HBO comedy special directed by Tignataro and it's called The Intruder. She has very, very funny jokes about why teenagers scare her, her husband's encounter with the said intruder, and of course, her grandmother. My grandma can't eat gluten anymore. And, you know, I was shocked because I didn't know. Did you know? (laughs) Did you know that immigrants can get this? (laughs) No, I truly, I truly didn't know. I really didn't know. I was like, our community, this is when, you know? I truly didn't know. Like, I, no, I really thought that this was something that only happened to white people. (laughs) That's one punchline, but she extends the joke even further into a second punchline that's so delicious, but I'll keep the powder dry, Beverly. I just want to say, like, when she deals with issues like race, about being an undocumented immigrant, and even an incredibly poignant section about her mother's mental illness. Her mother lives with schizophrenia. It is so poignant, but it is so searingly, gut-stabbingly funny as well that I would recommend Atsuko's comedy special to anyone who is able to balance those sweet and sour things in tandem. Um, She does that incredibly well. And the last thing I'd recommend, which is also very, very dark and very, very funny, is Bad Sisters on Apple+. Plus. I'll give you the short pitch. Five sisters, the eldest one, Sharon Horgan, who we love from Catastrophe. One sister is in an emotionally abusive relationship. The other sisters feel like they're losing her and they all decide to murder that husband. Great premise, great soundtrack. PJ Harvey provides a lot of the music in it. It was a very, very good thing to watch while I was recovering from COVID over the summer. Oh, it finally got you. Well, I don't know. Maybe the bad sisters are actually good sisters at heart. Exactly. exactly. I mean, if you would kill for your sister, sibling bonds. (laughs) Okay, now next we have an announcement. Save the date, Saturday, February the 18th. Stop Everything is heading to Western Sydney. Yes, we'll be recording a live show at Riverside, the National Theatre of Parramatta, Saturday on the 18th of February. Please come join us if that's in your local area and be part of the audience. We would love to see you there and say hello. And we're going to be having some conversations connected to World Pride. So save the date and we will share ticketing details as soon as they come to hand. The 18th of February. Can't wait to see you all there in person. Stop Everything is produced on the land of the Eora and Kula Nations and on the land of the Muwanina people from country around Nipaluna. You can follow us on the ABC Listen app. And if you have a smart speaker, you can even ask it to play the latest episode of Stop Everything. Thank you to our producer, Sarah Mashman, our sound engineer, Angie Grant, and we will see you next week.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.